Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! No. I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with another Slate spoiler special podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about the new Charlie Kaufman film, written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And joining me to talk about that very strange film is the very strange, in a good way, Matthew Desim. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Hey, Dana. Matt, you are the Nights and Weekends editor of Browbeat, Slate's Culture Blog. Yes. And you are a person I'm very glad to get to discuss this movie with, because I just feel like, I mean... I don't know you super well. We've met for drinks a few times. I'm a loyal reader of yours, but I somehow have a feeling that this movie is going to match with your sensibility in some sort of interesting way and that you're going to have some maybe some explanations of it that I might not have had. And it's an extremely enigmatic movie, ideal for spoiling. So uh, I'm really I'm really hyped for this one. Well, thank you. I'm really excited to be here, too. I'm looking forward to talking about it with you. So I guess we should start, as I usually do, these spoiler specials by sort of getting evaluation out of the way. I just sort of ask up top whether you overall liked the movie and would send a friend to it or not, so that we're not really doing a review here, right? We're actually sort of doing a conversation about what happens, including all the stuff you can't get into in reviews. So did you like it? And would you send a friend? I did and I would. Um, Yeah, I think it's a really interesting movie. I would think about what kind of mood my friend was in. I maybe wouldn't send a deeply depressed friend to watch it. But on the whole, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I would agree. I think that I would even go so far as to say that it's my favorite directed by Charlie Kaufman, Charlie Kaufman movie. I mean, we tend to talk about movies that Charlie Kaufman wrote as though they're Charlie Kaufman movies. He's one of the very few screenwriters right now working who who gets that kind of above the line recognition. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, right? Being John Malkovich adaptation all have that particular stamp, but all were directed by different directors. The only three movies that he has written and directed are Schenectady, New York, which I think may come up in the context of talking about this one because it has so many similar themes. Anomalisa, which was this really under the radar, but I thought wonderful stop action movie that he directed a couple of years ago. And now this one, I'm thinking of ending things. So Charlie Kaufman as director is one thing that I want to talk about with you because Arguments have been made that Charlie Kaufman is at his best when someone else is directing him, that his <laughs> mind is is so imaginative and so convoluted that, you know, sometimes he gets too far up into the wrinkles of his own brain and that he almost needs like a balancing influence of a director. I think that I might have said that myself with Schenectady, which while I ad- enormously admire certain parts of it and will never forget them, I think overall I did not worship the way some critics did. Anomalisa is a little bit more of just an, an, a beautiful oddity. I, I really loved it, but I'm not sure that it's really stuck with me and that I remember it as much. I think this is the most successful of the, the three movies that he's made as a filmmaker. Would you concur with that? 
I would, I would concur with that. Uh, but I would say that it's the most successful of the three movies that he's directed that I've seen in that it is, in fact, the only one of those three movies. Oh, <laughs> you haven't seen so, Schenectady. Okay. I mean, you should I have see not, all of them. I know but... I need to. It's one of those incredibly embarrassing things that I never got around to. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, it's just there's so many bar conversations that you will be able to have that you could not have had <laughs> without Schenectady, New York. Well, I will get on it. It seems, uh, it's always struck me as a very daunting film. It's extremely daunting. And while I'm really glad I saw it, and like I say, loved some parts of it, I sort of never want to see it again because you think this movie's a downer? I mean, it's connected to New York is really, it makes Samuel Beckett look like, you know, <laughs> I don't know, Ernie yeah. and Bert or something. <laughs> it's a very, very dark vision of humanity. Yeah, I've got to be careful with that stuff uh, on a personal <laughs> level because uh, I'll fixate on it. But anyway, yeah, no, I, I thought it was a, a very well-directed movie. So let's get into enough of the story that we can at least give people who haven't seen the movie and maybe don't plan to see the movie some sense of what we're getting into. In other words, you know, I don't want to just start asking you questions about, gee, what the hell happened with so-and-so until we introduce <laughs> who so-and-so is. And there aren't that many so-and-sos in this movie to get to. It's really a small ensemble cast, wonderful ensemble cast, by the way. Like, if there were an ensemble cast Oscar, I feel like this movie should be considered for it because everyone seems to understand exactly what strange kind of movie they're in. But let's set up who these these basic characters are. The very first scene of I'm Thinking of Ending Things begins in a car where we're going to spend a lot of the movie in which a young woman and her boyfriend, relatively new boyfriend, are driving to see his parents. They're leaving a city, an unnamed city, and going to a farm out in the country where his parents live. And the two people in this car are Lucy, played by Jesse Buckley, and Jake, played by Jesse Plemons. And we meet them in the midst of their conversation about driving to the parents' farm. Already in the car, before they get to the farm, things start to be strange, although nowhere near as strange as they're going to get later on. And I wonder if you could maybe describe just in that first 20 minute or so setup of their conversation on the drive, you know, what kind of <laughs> cognitive, imaginative world Kaufman takes us into, which is not quite realistic. You start with a voiceover, which is uh, Jesse Buckley, who sort of narrates it, and it comes straight out of the novel. It's an adaptation of a novel by the same name by Ian Reid that came out in 2016, and I think was pretty well reviewed. It's a pretty good novel. I like the movie better. But so anyway, so it starts actually with just voiceover that is straight from that, and you're in kind of Jesse Buckley's narrating, and it seems like she's, well, the first words are, I'm thinking of ending things. And in that context, it seems like she's thinking about breaking up with Jake. As they drive, they have sort of an awkward conversation about all kinds of things. Uh, the first sort of bit of weirdness is they drive past a farm where there's a brand new swing set, but no building. The building's all burned out. And the swing set, we've actually seen a shot of it earlier, although it was in that shot very decrepit. They're going to see Jake's parents. They're going to meet them for the first time. Lucy is not entirely sure they're going to stay together. So she's kind of thinking about whether or not this is, was a mistake to go to do this thing or whatever. And on the way, they have just sort of a young couple conversation. Jake tells her a little bit about Wordsworth, who he's been reading. She tells him that she has to get home because she's working on a virology paper about rabies. They put on the radio, there's a song from Oklahoma. And that's when you see something that sort of keeps happening, which is that in the middle of this story of these two people on the road trip, it keeps cutting to shots of a high school janitor sort of going about his day. You see him eating breakfast and watching cartoons. You see him walking down the hallway of a high school and getting made fun of by some students there. Uh, and this is kind of intercut with this as the road trip goes. And then the first really strange thing that happens is after it's been established that Lucy is a 
virologist of some sort, they start talking about her poetry. And she then recites this long poem about going home that she says she's just written on the trip. Yeah. And that moment is remarkable because, well, it'll come up later in other weird ways as well. But as you say, it suddenly broadens our understanding of Jessie. Like, wait, what, is she a poet or is she a science student or is she somehow both? Is she changing or are we just learning more about her? That's going to become a bigger and bigger question as the movie goes on. But even before that, there's been this sense when he brought up Wordsworth, for example, that he can read her thoughts, right? There's these moments where we hear a voiceover as if she's speaking only to herself. And I think one of the things she thinks is the child is father to the man, a line from a Wordsworth poem. And at that very moment, he says, hey, have you ever read Wordsworth? But she doesn't seem to know that that line is from that poem. So that's one of the first implications that we get that there's some kind of almost psychic interpenetration of their minds of some kind. Yeah. Also, whenever she thinks... I'm thinking of ending things. He seems to hear that and reacts not super great to it. It's funny that you heard I'm thinking of ending things as being about their relationship, both when I heard that this was the title of the movie and when it's the very first line she says, I thought it was about suicide, which also, you know, becomes a theme in the movie later on. (laughs) It isn't, it isn't, right? But yeah, when she thinks it and he seems to have overheard her, Jake, he seems to understand it, that she's going to leave him. And she, when she says it, she, the context of her voiceover around then, I think implies that she's thinking of leaving him, that she doesn't know him that well and that sort of stuff. Right. But either way, I mean, the opening lines are, I'm thinking of any things. Once the thought arrives, you can't, you know, you can't get it out of your head. You know, it's about the way you kind of fixate on those sorts of things. And I I suppose you can fixate on the thought of whether or not you're going to leave somebody, but obviously the primary thing people roll over and over in their minds like that is suicide. Yeah. In general, the opening voiceover is sort of all about fixation, explicitly so, self-referentially so in a very Kaufmanian way. You know, she seems to be aware that she's having these obsessive thoughts and trying to turn them around. So really what you get the portrait of at the beginning, I mean, when you still think you're somewhat still in normal land, is that you're in a car with these two neurotic young people who don't know whether they belong together. And, you know, they're trying somewhat unsuccessfully to communicate. Um, There's also this, this referentiality that begins early on in the movie and continues in different ways throughout, where other little bits of culture are constantly informing their conversation, whether it's, you know, him talking about Wordsworth, or the two of them later on get into a big discussion of a John Cassavetes movie in great detail, or, you know, him naming all the musicals that he knows. And that seems to me like it's bringing up an important theme in this movie and in other places for Kaufman, which is, you know, what culture and and especially mass culture does to our brains and the degree to which every in- human interaction that they have or that people in general have is kind of infiltrated and almost poisoned by pop cultural expectations. I like the word infiltrated because that happens a lot. Stuff sort of seems to bleed through from what the brief shots we see of what the janitor is doing into this story of the road trip, the, 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 the road trip these people are taking. Like, uh, there's a scene in that after they have a conversation about, no, before they have a conversation about musicals, the reason they have it is because Jake turns on the radio and, um, a song from Oklahoma is playing. And during that conversation, uh, in which, by the way, Jake says something kind of odd, which is that he knows Oklahoma pretty well because they put it on every couple of years for obvious reasons. We see the janitor who is cleaning an auditorium where a high school cast is rehearsing Oklahoma and re- rehearsing that song, uh, which he stopped to listen to and until one of the singers notices he is watching and gets kind of creeped out. Yeah. And so Oklahoma becomes important, too, and will be later in the mysterious ending of the movie that I can't wait to ask you what the hell you think it means. Um, (laughs) So so that's the car ride. And things at that point, I would say, have a sense of slight foreboding, but, you know, uh, but not necessarily completely trippy. 
Then they arrive at the parents' farm, finally. And this all has to do, I think, with the editing, which is really remarkable in this movie. It could be argued the movie's a little bit too long. I think it could probably lose 10 minutes and be a little bit punchier and more powerful. But that said, there's some really skillful uh, editing tricks that happen. And one of them is that whenever they arrive somewhere in the car, it's always right on top of some extremely mysterious and somewhat ominous line that someone speaks. And it's always sort of unexpected, right, both for the characters and in terms of the pacing of the movie. And that happens when they pull up to the parents' farmhouse when she says something like, jokingly, I can't remember what they're talking about, but she says jokingly, well, I guess we must must both be dead. <laughs> I don't remember what the conversation <laughs> is. And right then, you know, he says, well, here we are. And they're, they're at the parents' house. They seem to be going full speed. And then with no change, there's a cut to them pulling in and parking without any of the usual stuff you see in a movie to say, okay, they're getting close to their destination. Yeah, it's all very skillfully done. And you'll see way yeah. later on when they're driving in the blizzard to jump ahead a bit that there's very subtle things like the car not moving, right? I mean, there's there's moments when the car seems to be filmed as if the snow is blowing past and it's moving, but there's other moments where they have to be parked, even though they're acting as if they're driving, which goes to this whole, the question that becomes huge in this movie as to whether, you know, time is actually passing or whether they're somehow statically frozen in some moment of time, while time, as her character puts it, moves through them, to give you an idea of how metaphysical this is going to get. So... They pull up to the parents' house, but before they go in, they go on this strange and creepy trip around the farm, and I'm wondering what you think of that whole bit, and if you can help me summarize it. He insists that he, his parents understand that he needs to stretch his legs, and that before he goes into the house, he's going to take her on a little walkabout on this isolated farm. Which she does not want to do, because it's freezing out. Before they go in, he walks her out to the barn, where there are some sheep. They have a conversation about them, but there are two dead sheep that are sitting like just outside the barn and have been frozen solid. And she asks him what's going to happen to them. And he says, well, they're frozen. So they'll probably be burned in the spring. And then they go to what used to be the pig barn or bin or I don't know. What do you keep pigs in? Sty? The pig pen. The pig, <laughs> uh, yes. Pig sty, pig pen. And says that they used to keep pigs, but they don't anymore. And tells him the story about how his father was taking care of the pigs that they had and was not paying a lot of attention to them was just would feed them or whatever and one night realizes that they just haven't moved in a couple days so he goes over to them and, and lifts one of the pigs up and sees that they're being eaten alive by maggots and they have to be destroyed or whatever and there's a sort of ominous stain on the floor of the uh pigsty where presumably the pigs were undergoing their horrible <laughs> Fates. Yeah, that's a that's a horrible image, which we'll return to in a strangely sort of cute form much later on. Right. But but I think it also establishes, you know, it's the first time I think that the movie starts to seem not just like a psychological thriller, but like a potential horror movie. And something we haven't right. really mentioned, but we'll explore as we go along, is that this movie is, you know, basically completely gleefully disregarding the notion of genre. Like, is it a psychological thriller? Is it a horror movie? Is it, you know, a, a metaphysical meditation? Is it a romance? Is it Oklahoma? Yeah, <laughs> kind of moves around. <laughs> but that is the first moment, and it'll, there'll be more stuff later with the basement in the house, etc., that, you know, that refers to kind of traditional horror movie tropes. I mean, after that moment, you can't get the, the idea of a pig being eaten alive by maggots out of your mind, especially right. when the mom serves ham for dinner. <laughs> yes, and tells them later. everything on this table has come from the farm. <laughs> and then there's a big shot of the ham. Oh, that's, the, that's a good example of one of the jokes in this movie that are cruel and gross, but funny. I laughed a lot watching this movie, even though I would say my prominent mood was not humor, but more, you know, kind of 
ominous, menacing fear, but there are definitely right. some some laugh out loud moments too. So they get into the house. It takes them quite a while to see the parents to such a degree that I actually thought at this point, are we going down the line of the parents are entire figments of Jesse Plemons' imagination and, and we're never going to see them. Right. But they do eventually show up after a lot of weird things happen that kind of imply that this is somehow either a magic, you know, in a bad way, that this is either somehow a house under some sort of spell or that, you know, someone in it is going crazy. For example, there's a dog, Jimmy, who only seems to appear when Jesse Buckley's character thinks of him, right? She asks, do you have a dog? And at the moment she asks about the dog, the dog appears. And we never see him except at a moment when she seems to be asking where he is. Right. And we never see him doing anything except like shaking off water in a sort of continual seizure kind of thing. There's only one shot that the dog is in. And right. It is a shot of the dog shaking off water like a dog does when it goes in, but it just keeps going. Uh, yeah. Like it's stuck in that moment. Yeah. So that starts to be, we start to somehow think like this, this farmhouse is some kind of time sinkhole. And that is right. somehow connected not just to Jesse and his parents, but to this janitor, the school janitor that we keep cutting back and forth to. But as you can imagine, I mean, we're less than 20 minutes into the movie at this point, and it's already quite mysterious. So uh, let's get into the parents, other members of this cast that I think belong in the best ensemble group, because again, they just get it. I mean, this is not easy dialogue to speak and not an easy dramatic universe to inhabit, because you have to play a lot of different things at once. You have to play comedy and menace and tenderness and you know in, incomprehension and all kinds of things but when they show up they're played by tony collette and david thewlis how would you characterize them at first well i think i mean the very first conversation they have is kind of threatening because jesse buckley says something like i've i've heard a lot about you and tony collette says oh and you came anyway and then she just laughs like way too long <laughs> uh, and in kind of a creepy sort of tony collette fashion but yeah they come across like like semi-embarrassing parents, I suppose. They're a little creepy when you first meet them, but when they once they sit down at the dinner table, the conversation is like not one of the worst conversations ever between a new girlfriend and her boyfriend's parents, but it's not comfortable. Or it goes off the rails a couple times. Uh, they talk about her work, which now seems to be that she's a painter. And Jake's father, David Thewlis, does not like abstract paintings. He likes representational stuff. So they have that sort of conversation. I'm not sure. How would you characterize the relationship between Jake and his parents? I mean, at the beginning, I guess it seems like that first dinner table scene is all about them undermining him, right? I mean, that's the moment when you start right. to realize that the Jake you met in the car, who is really pretty likable, right? The Jake that you first meet in the car is this guy who's interested in his girlfriend's work, has questions about it, loves the poem she recites for him, you know, wants to talk about all these cultural topics. He's maybe a little overbearing and a little talky. <laughs> this whole movie is very talky. Sure. But he seems... He seems kind of like a catch to me at the beginning. And some right. of the stuff that happens at the table starts to undermine that image and to show that, you know, maybe perhaps some of it was either um, a projection of Jesse's mind or that uh, some overacting on his part, because the parents, as they revisit his childhood, seem to be talking about this lonely underachiever. And and Tony Collette at one point proudly brags that he, he once won a pen in school for his diligence, right? And and then he points yeah. out, well, it wasn't acumen. <laughs> just those kind of contrasts, just the precision of vocabulary is so Kaufmanian. Like, I love how much he loves words and how precisely he chooses words. But there's this whole discussion about whether it is truly an honor to be awarded for only your diligence and not your acumen. And, you know, does he have any real skills or is he just kind of a hardworking slogger? There's the usual thing where he's a little embarrassed when they're telling stories about his past. And as you say, there's stories that don't really seem to match up with the 
present guy, but then they have a conversation where Tony Collette starts talking about how smart he is because he can answer all the questions in the genius edition of Trivial Pursuit. And that just drives Jake up the wall that she's not saying the genius edition. <laughs> right. And that's, I think that's the first time he like seems to lose his temper, but he loses it with his mom, not with Jesse. Right. Just because she just insists on saying it's, that it's the genius edition and it drives him up the wall. That trivia question comes up as well because that's the first time the story is told of how Jesse and Lucy met. Right. And that story becomes important later on because it keeps being told differently and having different permutations as this movie starts to question both the identity of those two characters and the history of their relationship. But according to the first story they tell, they met at a Trivial Pursuit game, which would match with the characters you see in the car who are very cerebral and brainy and trading all these references and talking about ideas, etc., I right. guess the first moment I would remark that seems like, I mean, for one thing, is very cinematically effective, but also seemed like a great horror movie moment in that early part is when they're all sitting around the table having this awkward conversation, stiltily going through these things. And the camera, I can't remember if it cuts or if it sort of pulls back, but the camera isolates Jesse in this door frame so that you can't see anyone else at the table. And you hear her saying, as she was talking about the Trivial Pursuit meetup, that all seems so long ago, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem impossibly long ago? And there's this sense right then that maybe no one else is there. And she's imagined the whole thing. And I had a strange flash forward, like, is this going to become like the very ending of 2001, A Space Odyssey, where suddenly she's alone in a house, you know, aging right, really right. rapidly or something? So there's a sense at that moment that maybe she had imagined a whole, the whole thing. And I guess here I'm getting close to a question that's going to become a big overarching question as I ask, like, what does this all mean? And what is Kaufman trying to do? Which is, which of these two characters, I mean, protagonist is maybe the wrong word, but whose perspective, whose brain are we inside most of the time, right? I mean, when we experience these strange temporal shifts, or everyone seems to be gone for a second, I'm kind of assuming, at least through the first three quarters of the movie or so, that it's Jesse's head, that she's the protagonist, she's the one who weird things are happening to. And, you know, the the weird cinematic things that happen, like that camera movement, are echoing subjective experiences of hers. I think that she's the narrator, but I don't think it's happening inside of her head. Can we get spoilery at this point? Yeah, I mean, it's a spoiler special. I think we can get spoiler as much as we want and, and jump ahead. And I should warn listeners who haven't seen the movie that I think from here on out, it's sort of all bets are off. But hey, the title's the spoiler special. So you knew what you're getting into. Yeah, exactly. My read is that it's narrated by Jesse Buckley's character, but it's taking place in the head of the janitor. Interesting. So he is almost animating her as a character, as if he was the writer of the story. Exactly. I think he is the author of this uh, this, this story. Uh-huh. He certainly, I mean, if I can talk about the novel, he cert- that's certainly the way the novel works. In the novel, the text of the novel are, the janitor is sort of a Henry Darger type. Henry Darger was a janitor or custodian at a Chicago hospital who just sort of worked as a custodian his entire life. And when he died, they found in his place these manuscripts, one of the longest works ever written in English, this science fiction epic about a child slave rebellion that he had written and illustrated himself. And it's like, you know, hundreds of thousands of pages. And then several other novels he wrote at one point, he tried to write apparently a, an autobiographical novel that he got about a hundred pages in and then sort of got to the point where he witnessed this tornado as a kid. And then he wrote like another thousand pages narrated by the tornado, which goes about having adventures and very strange, very strange guy. But the idea basically that he had this quiet, unnoticed life, but in his private time was creating this just bizarre literary work. 
Right. Which which was also, we should mention, not to go too far down Darger Lane, but he's so fascinating, it was also illustrated by these extraordinary paintings of you yes. know, sort of little girls at war with each other, this, this big cosmic story that he was trying to tell. Anyway, just a fascinating figure who I'm sure the novelist Ian Reid must have had in mind as he was creating that janitor character. Yeah, absolutely. All right. But if that's the case, and now focusing on the, the movie, not the book, if this is all somehow taking place from the janitor's perspective... Is he somehow Jake as well? I mean, my assumption throughout the long period of the movie where we're intercutting between, you know, the doings of Jake and company and the janitor was that the janitor somehow was Jake in sort of the ultimate universe that he ended up in, if you will. You know, that uh, that somehow he was in a time loop where he kept re- repeating this trip. That's very clearly implied many times that the trip has happened many times, maybe with different girls. And that the janitor is just somehow the the lonely outcome of all of those failed attempts at romance. Does that make sense? Did you ever, either in book or movie, believe that Jake and the janitor were one in different time spaces? I think that they are. I mean, I think the basic thing that's going on there is the janitor is, is thinking of ending things. And this story is sort of a, a hypothetical looking back at, at moments in his own past. Okay, I can't get, wait, wait to get to, to what some of those are. <laughs> the the uh, sort of lightly excruciating dinner scene uh, comes to an end, and we start to come to a stranger part of the movie where the time travel elements and, you know, the, the temporal bends that are happening get more weird. But before that, there was a extra textual incursion that, that you want to talk about a moment, one of the many moments when Charlie Kaufman brings in another sort of work of art from the outside. You want to talk about that? Yeah, the sort of horror movie moment that you talk about where Jesse Buckley is, is framed in the doorway and then it cuts to a full on shot of her that kind of pulls back and the room is suddenly empty is that that first kind of like, as you said, very creepy horror movie moment. But it cuts directly from that to the janitor again, who is now sitting in an empty classroom with a TV and a DVD player and he's watching a Robert Zemeckis romantic comedy on it. So the narrative like completely stops at that point. And we go into him, him watching this, this other narrative on his lunch break, which is a very, you know, it's the Charlie Kaufman deliberately cliched Hollywood movie, in this case, supposedly directed by Robert Zemeckis. It's the end of a romantic comedy. So this couple, one of whom is a waitress, the other whom is training to be a waiter, following her around. He gives a big passionate speech about who this woman is, that she's not just a waitress, et cetera, et cetera. It's, you know, it's the end of a romantic comedy. The moment when all, all the customers applaud, right? That has to happen in every romantic comedy. Exactly. And then we go back to the house and then things start getting really bizarre. I have to say that my first big laugh out loud moment was just when the words directed by Robert Zemeckis <laughs> appeared at the end of that clip because he doesn't reveal, right, that name until the end of the clip. And there's just something so, so snarky and hilarious about it. But also, you know, it's it's another acknowledgement of what they were talking about earlier in the car about people's minds being kind of invaded by tropes and ideas from movies and popular culture about what romance is supposed to be. And later on, we will see that that is almost like some sort of alternate universe meet cute the two of them might have had rather than the one that they did have at the trivia game. But I love the placement. That was just a moment where I just had sheer respect for just Charlie Kaufman's audacity and sense of humor. I, I love that transition. It like smash cuts to that that credit at the end of it just very abruptly, the same way it sort of abruptly cuts to them pulling in places and it's unexpected and really funny. That's great. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So then after that break, we go into a completely different mood, which which really is close to the the closing of 2001 when we see, you know, care delay aging and these very fast spurts. There's something like that about this next sequence of the movie where we're back same night, same farmhouse, but the parents have changed and keep changing in different ways. So... Jesse Buckley is starting to explore the house, sort of trying to figure out how the hell she's going to get out of there that same night. So you almost might say that she's not appropriately afraid <laughs> for how strange the things are that start to happen. But then again, I think that is part of her also getting sucked into the psychological strangeness of this universe, right? And this is kind of part of what Charlie Kaufman is trying to do is to disorient us and make her disorientation more understandable so that she's not reacting in a sort of logical way, like what the hell's going on here, but letting herself be sucked into the strangeness. And the first manifestation of that strangeness is that she goes upstairs to Jake's childhood bedroom, which is labeled with the sign Jake's childhood bedroom, and is met by David Thewlis as the dad, but he's older. He's got, he's had a serious application of age makeup since last time. <laughs> and he seems to be somewhat demented as he admits, you know, he says, I'm losing my memory. That's where th why there's this sign on the door identifying Jake's childhood bedroom. But there's a lot of temporal things in that bedroom that are off. It seems to be the bedroom of a much older person, right? His memorabilia and his toys and things are, would, would be from a kid who grew up in the fifties the or so. And right. there's just something about that room that makes you start to think, okay, now we're in a time travel movie, you know, where she is slipping between different time frames. The other thing that's significant about that room when she goes in there is there's a, a sort of bookshelf. And on that bookshelf are, there's a copy of a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again, which comes with a conversation. There's a copy of a novel called Ice by uh, Anna Coven. There's an anthology of Paul and Kale reviews. And I think it's in this scene before the father appears. There's a book of poems by a woman named uh, Eva HD that Jesse Buckley picks up and flips through. And in the book is the poem that she recited earlier in the movie in the car um, that she presented as something that she had, had written at that point. So all of these works like the Cassavetes movie that they later talk about or like the David Foster Wallace book of essays that he mentions to her later are real works. But there's a way that this movie weaves them into, you know, the, the character's stories so that somehow she also wrote this poem that is attributed to someone else on his table. And I suppose that if you were going to be, as later on, I'm going to ask you to try to be a, a total pragmatist robot who is just trying to sum up exactly what was happening in some non-magical universe, that what you might say would be that this was his projection, right? It was a good poem that he read in a book, and he wished that he could know the woman who wrote it. And he sort of created a girlfriend in his mind who had, in fact, written that poem. Yeah, but I think that 
it goes a little bit backwards. Uh, I think it's more like the author here, the janitor or whatever, is creating a girlfriend and has to give her some sort of a character. And in the absence of having an actual person who he knows, uh, because he is so isolated and because he never actually knew this woman, he sort of populates her head with things that he's been reading and doing and seeing and so on. There's also a virology textbook on that shelf. So the first thing she talks about what she's doing is is a topic that's in that book. And then when she's a poet, what's her poetry like? Well, it's like this poem that he just read um, right. or that, that is in his bedroom. Um, and when they start talking about a woman under the influence, what, what she does is she literally recites Paul and Kale's review or right. uh, excerpts from it, which is also on the shelf there. So it's like he's trying to imagine a girlfriend who's smart about film and likes talking about movies. Well, you know, who do you model that after? Right. I mean, we're skipping ahead of it, but that moment blows me away. Also, just as as performance by Jesse Buckley, just the, oh, the no subtle kidding. way the that she, she, does she changes her voice. And I mean, without even looking it up, I knew that has to be Pauline Kael. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a different yeah. voice that she's speaking in. And it almost had a sort of mid-century cadence. It was just a brilliant little piece of performance when she transform, transformed into Pauline Kael for that moment. But just yeah. to talk through these, these temporal changes with the parents. So they start to happen kind of harder and faster during the next couple of scenes. Like the parents go back and forth in age. She goes into another room and Jesse Plemons, his character still the same age, is now feeding his mother in a wheelchair and she's much, much older, right? She seems to be on the verge of death. In fact, later on, we see her on what seems to be her deathbed, possibly already dead. But meanwhile, then David Thewlis pops up from the kitchen and he's young again, not just as young as he was when we first saw him, but an even younger iteration of himself, which also happens to Tony Collette at one point, right? Showing up in an apron looking like a 60s housewife. And so it seems sort of clear that she is, I mean, in a way that really brings back being John Malkovich, I think, or maybe it was Eternal Sunshine where there's a moment, yeah, Eternal Sunshine at a moment when Jim Carrey travels back into his past, right? But he's still an adult. This seems to be some dreamlike exploration of the various eras of his life that Jesse Plemons' character has lived through in this farmhouse. And the last little moment in this farmhouse sequence that I want to mention is just the closest that this part gets to being a straight up horror movie and almost in a parodic way, which is when Toni Collette, as one of the younger iterations of herself as a, as a mom, sends Jesse Buckley's character down into the basement, which has been identified before in an almost joking way as this um, this place that Jesse Plemons' character doesn't like to go. It seems like it's been taped off. Uh, there are these scratches on the door that he attributes to the dog, but it all seems very suspect. And, you know, it's a creepy horror movie basement on a farm, which she has had been hesitant to go down into. But... The young Tony Collette hands her this soiled nightgown, soiled apparently with Jake's baby poo. So that's how far back in time she has traveled and says, hey, why don't you go and put this in in the basement? There's a pretty scary scene of her descending into the basement with Jesse Plummett's character at the top sort of inaudibly begging her not to go in. And the, the movie makes it into kind of a red herring because nothing monstrous does happen in the basement. But what happens, I think, is a good clue to your theory that the, the janitor was just making this all up in his mind the whole time. Because as she reaches into the washer to put in this nightgown, all that's in there is um, one after another of his uniforms, these custodial uniforms that he wears to clean up at the school that we've already seen with the logo on his body. So that's some kind of sign that he's actually living in the house. And once again, this is the pragmatist robot speaking, trying to somehow make it all make sense. <laughs> is that the person actually living in the house is just simply the older janitor who is possibly an old Jake and who's imagining all of these other people, including the girlfriend being there. Yeah. 
why I didn't experience that in real time, I don't think, is just because Jesse Buckley's character is so believable. I mean, you so feel that you're inside the specific sensibility of a specific woman with a voice. She does not at all seem, she is not at all written or played like uh, a mere projection of male fantasy. Yeah. And two things about the basement I like to say. One is that Jake from the very beginning does not want her to go down there. And before she goes down, young Tony Collette from the 60s has a conversation about how Jake is so bossy and controlling and tells her that she doesn't have to do what Jake tells her and kind of encourages her not to do what Jake tells her to do. So when she's going down the stairs and Jake is just does not want her to go down there, that's if you believe that Jake and the gender are the same person, it's one of those kind of character rebelling against the author moments. The other thing that she finds down there are a bunch of not very good landscape paintings and posters for an exhibition of uh, Ralph Albert Blakelock paintings, which matched the paintings that she had showed to the father earlier in the thing and said said were hers. Right. And that goes with your Pauline Kael theory, right? So that the Blakelock painter would be a painter he admired and then subsequently projected that painter's talent onto his imaginary girlfriend. You know, and I'm just thinking of this, but yeah, the other thing is that during the dinner conversation, uh, Tony Collette says that Jake used to paint, but doesn't anymore. What we're seeing down there are these just not very good imitations of Ralph Albert Blakelock's style. So it's also true that that place is for Jake or for, if we think the janitor is, is Jake, another sort of abandoned place where his life could have taken a different turn if he were a better painter. Right. Which is, is clearly something he doesn't want to get into. But it's another thing where she goes down there and sees work that exists in the real world and was done by a real person that she has previously claimed that she did herself. They're just brilliant enigmas, and I love that they're never solved. And I have a few negative things to say about this movie, but nothing so far. I will. I would say that for the first hour of this movie or so, I was just spellbound and just loved everything that was happening. And we're still in that part. So they do finally manage to get away from the house and start driving back home again, although the idea of what home is keeps on changing. And, you know, she'll say, I really need to get home for tomorrow for my work. And he'll say, you mean the farm? And so we seem (laughs) to be losing touch with the idea that there is any city for them to go back to at all. And then I guess maybe the next little moment we should touch on is Tulsi Town, the uh, the all night ice cream stand that they decide to stop off at for a snack along the way home. Yeah. So as they're driving, Jake sort of suggests and then insists that they stop and get blizzards basically in the... uh, uh, in the novel, they stop at a Dairy Queen, but they they stop at this, for some reason, open late at night in the middle of nowhere in, in a blizzard, a, a Tulsi Town, which is a, a Dairy Queen stand-in or whatever to order these, I think they're called burrs in the movie, but they're clearly blizzards. I love stuff like that, too. Just like Charlie Kaufman making up brand names, you know? He's good at stuff yeah. like that. Much later in the film, you see sort of like the Tulsi Town advertising, and that is explicitly modeled after a like a drive-in ad for Dairy Queen from the 50s. But anyway, so they get to Tulsi Town and there are two clerks there at first. And if you pay close attention, you'll see that one of them is the girl who was making fun of the janitor in the hallway earlier. And the other one, I believe, is the woman who was singing Oklahoma and then gets a little bit creeped out at the janitor watching her. Right. They're the pretty popular girls from the high school where he cleans. Right. Exactly. They react to Jake in a way that doesn't make much sense if he lives in the city and is there often. But it does make a certain amount of sense if you imagine the way pretty popular girls might interact with their high school janitor if he showed up at their workplace uh, unexpectedly, that whole sort of senior teacher shopping uh, thing where they're a little creeped out to see him outside of that that context. But in the context of Jesse Buckley and, and Jesse Plum's character stopping there, it's just incomprehensible. They're just, they're just behaving very weirdly. And then there's a third character there who comes out to actually make the burrs, and she's sort of a mousy-looking girl who we've also seen, well... 
earlier in the thing while the janitor was walking down one of the hallways. And that shot, Jake has a, a monologue where he says, I look at the kids I see at school every day, which right off the bat doesn't make sense because Jake doesn't see kids at school every day. I see the ones who are ostracized. They're different. They're out of step. And I see the lives they'll have because of it. Sometimes I see them years later in town at the supermarket. I see, I can tell that they carry that stuff around with them like a black aura, like a millstone, like an oozing wound. Over that shot, we see this sort of unpopular girl in the high school hallway. And then she appears at Tulsi Town, sort of. And she's nice where the other two girls are rude. And she talks to Jesse Buckley about how she thinks sort of it's made different because they're pretty or whatever. But she's also very strange. She seems very frightened. And she has a weird rash on her hand that matches a rash that we see only in that shot that's also on Jake's hand. Only in one shot where money is exchanged that's on Jake's hand. It's oh, a very strange interesting. thing. I didn't see the transference of the rash in that scene. But yeah, that, that girl was interesting because she seemed to be one of the few lucid characters in the in the film's universe outside of Jesse, to the extent that we even know that Jesse is real. She's the person in the horror movie who's saying something wrong is he going on here and you need to get away. Yeah, it's the it's the creepy guy at the gas station in the horror movie kind of thing, whatever. She says, like, you don't have to go with him to Jesse Buckley that you don't you don't or I think she might say something like you don't have to go through with it. Well, and she also implies you can stay. I mean, whatever kind of temporal loop has been created, whether it was created in some universal way for various people or only in the mind of Jesse Plemons character, she seems to know about it because she sort of says, you know, they'd had that conversation earlier about time and do we pass through time or does time pass through us? And uh, and she seems to be saying, you can just stay here and let time pass through you, almost as if she's offering that opportunity. She also says this really creepy, never explained thing about that smell in the back. It isn't varnish, like I said it was, it's something else. And then that gives me the sense almost which is also never really explained, that there might be some malevolent force above them all that's keeping them fixed there, right? I mean, what does varnish do? It fixes something in time. Somehow this idea that, you know, that the Tulsi town ice cream place is some source of this, whatever factor it is that's freezing them in time. To be a pragmatic robot about it, I also think it's possible that the janitor is just cleaning a place where they've been doing some varnishing at that, at that point in the story. But she says it's not that, right? She offers some scary idea that, that there's some there's some other substance that's keeping them trapped there. Anyway, yeah, that I mean, I do but, love, no, I right love the enigma that not all this is ever explained, by the way. There right. are a few things at the end that I wish were explained a bit more, and we'll get to what those are. But in general, I just love that this movie is full of mysterious red herrings that you could think about forever and not be able to resolve. Yeah, the scratches on the door, for example, I think are like way higher than a dog right. would leave them. There's a lot of stuff that just is sort of, yeah, left uh, left unexplained in a very, very fun way. Um, so the next stop off that the couple makes after another long stretch of driving, which I think this is where they talk about Cassavetes and David Foster Wallace. I mean, there's just something right, very right. funny about how how talky this movie is. It's also very cinematic. And, you know, the camera is extremely important. It's not that it could be a stage play. But there are long, long stretches, especially in the car that are actually, you know, my dinner with Andre in a car. It's like about the ideas that they're discussing. And, uh, and, and I really love that. Also, that their references don't always converge at moments, you know, you feel like, oh, I'm hearing a girlfriend and a boyfriend sort of commune about something. But in other conversations, like the one about Cassavetes, they really disagree. They strongly disagree. Or about the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. They have a little argument uh, that right. I've seen often being had on the internet about whether that song is, you know, a song about sexual coercion or not. I, there's something to me great about the fact that Charlie Kaufman is interested in those ideas, you know, that he doesn't just want to satirize the fact that they're having these intellectual conversations, but that he's he's interested in the subject himself. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would also say that 
if you're an elderly janitor imagining a fight between a younger version of yourself and a, an entirely hypothetical girlfriend, it might make sense to give them an argument that you've seen a million times on the internet or whatever. <laughs> you know, I like I think there's that. a lot yeah. of this stuff that is, I looked back at the script for eternal sunshine a little bit after I saw this and that movie also, I mean, Kaufman just does this, but the, the female characters in that movie particularly talk about things they've been reading, talk about Kate Winslet quotes a Tom Waits song at length. And uh, there's a sense in which there's kind of a self critique going on here that these characters that the janitor or whatever, I mean, again, if you find my read of it, that the janitor is creating are not necessarily all that well thought out or well drawn, that their conversation about baby, it's cold outside or whatever is, is also just like, like, as you say, it's a conversation that you've seen a, a thousand times and presumably so has the, has the author. Yeah. And so that's almost like a kind of glitch in the matrix that he's created or something, right? Because, right, right. Because other conversations that they have seem to be about their actual subjectivity. And I guess this is the, my mystery and my resistance to the idea that it's only the janitor's dream. Maybe just because I found Jesse Buckley's character such a fascinating protagonist. And I, I, it, I, it was very sad to imagine her just being reduced to the mere figment of someone's imagination. Well, or, I mean, you could say that she's being reduced to the figment of someone's imagination, or you could say that she's a character. I mean, any movie you see, there are a lot of people who are not real people. There's someone who dreamed them up, right? Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I mean, and, and that's that's kind of the mystery of Kaufman is that both things could be true at once, right? right. She's a real right, fascinating right. character, and she's obviously a figment of, you know, both the, the author of the novel and of Kaufman's imagination. Yeah. So their last adventure that they go on after they've gotten their b Oreo burrs <laughs> that they barely <laughs> drink is that they wind up at the school itself. And that happens, I guess, just because Jake is obsessed with throwing away these undrunk burr blizzard things, right? Yeah, he's afraid they're going to melt or he says he's afraid that they're going to melt and get his cup holders all sticky. But he knows, he tells Jesse Buckley that there's a, there's a high school up uh, one of these roads that he's familiar with where there'll be a trash can he can throw them out in and insists against her objections into driving up there into the high school. And when they arrive with another one of those abrupt, like overhead shots of them parking, Jake gets out of the car with the burrs and goes to the nearby trash can, opens it and apparently doesn't like what he sees there. Uh, and then goes into the high school and disappears and leaves Jesse Buckley alone in the car in the parking lot. Eventually he comes back having thrown them out and they have sort of a fight about the fact that he walked off. The mood changes in the, over the course of their fight from Jesse Buckley being furious that he's taking her on this crazy journey to throw away the Oreo burrs to them sort of getting along. And they're about to kiss when suddenly Jake pulls away. We get a, like a, a psycho insert shot of the janitor looking through. It looks like, like a hole in the wall. Isn't he supposed to be in his car rubbing the snow off of the window of the car? Is that what that shot is? I don't I have, know. I, you're right that I it's, looked at it's it a again. keyhole. It looked as though like, he was standing in a room. So it cuts to a sudden shot of the janitor and then back to Jake. And Jake is really mad. And he says that this janitor was looking at them. And something along the lines of, I know that look very well. And he says he's going to go talk to him because this is not okay with him, that this guy's a peeping Tom or whatever was watching them. And again, against Jesse Buckley's protests, he disappears into the high school. And she eventually follows him into this uh you know, well-lit but empty high school at night in the middle of a blizzard. And after she gets into the high school, I mean, which which is all in keeping with the theory that 
that the janitor is the future Jake. But after she gets into the high school, I feel like reality gets the most bent that it ever gets. And we'll see some of the ways that that happens. And I would also say if I were writing a review of this movie, this would be the part where I wouldn't say the movie completely falls apart, but where the tautness of the spell that it extends over the viewer starts to slacken a little bit. And a huge part of that may just be because Jesse Buckley becomes a smaller and smaller part of the movie. Um, And maybe this is just my conventional last girl, you know, expectation (laughs) that we're going to stay with Jesse until the end. But in fact, she starts to some degree to disappear from the movie. She does have this wonderful exchange with the janitor in the hall, this strangely tender kind of encounter with him where she asks if he's seen Jake, but she can't seem to remember anything about Jake, possibly maybe even his name, what he looks like. The story of how they met has now completely changed. And she tells the story of their trivial pursuit meetup that was so romantic and cute when they told it to the parents. Now, as if he was just kind of a creeper who was bugging her and her girlfriend later earlier on she called this person who we never see her girlfriend and you thought that she meant it as a platonic girlfriend but now she seems to mean that that was her romantic partner and she's annoyed that this man was creeping on her at a bar so i guess in your theory i mean the pragmatic not your but the pragmatic robot one um what would be happening here is simply that the janitor has a moment of lucidity where he realizes, oh, that time that I flirted with a girl at a trivia pursuit did not turn into a promising relationship. It was just me pestering a lesbian who was trying to celebrate her <laughs> anniversary with her girlfriend. And uh, she says something like, you know, you might as well ask me to remember what a mosquito looked like that bit me 40 years ago, which would be pretty harsh to hear if you were the old version of that person. Yeah. If you were telling the story to a third party, she seems very angry, like with the janitor while she tells it in a way that wouldn't be right if Jake and the janitor were not the same person. She's sort of annoyed by it. Then it concludes with her giving the janitor this hug that seems very genuine, right? That they share this moment of her sort of thanking him and and pitying him. Whatever place she's in mentally right then, she seems sort of seems to think of the janitor as some kind of helpmate or salvation. Well, I think that that's a moment where maybe she understands what's going on better than necessarily the audience does. I mean, I think like one way that you could read it is it's sort of like if you, if you say it's the janitor who's dreaming all of this up or whatever, he's created this hypothetical girlfriend and he's sort of been fleshing her out, trying out different names, different professions, different colors or sweater. I mean, all, <laughs> all of that stuff keeps shifting as he goes. And it's, it's like he's, he's, it, you say it's like a, a moment of lucidity. It's also, it's like he's finally drawn that character precisely enough that she can reject him. You know, it's like she's come to life more than he necessarily wanted her to, I think is, is one thing that's going right. on there. Yeah. It's as if her figment of an, his imagination side has been overtaken by the actual uh, content of her. Right. Character. And there are all these conversations uh, that they have from very early on about being seen, basically about the janitor's sense that he's, or it's Jesse Buckley saying it about the sense of being invisible unless she's with Jake and part of a couple and, you got to think about the points in his life that the girlfriend gets to see while they're in the house. It's stuff that he did that he thought was good that he didn't get any credit for. Uh, they have a conversation. He says something to her about that, about it feels like people don't see the good that you do in your life and it just all goes to nothing. And what you've seen is that this Jake character has over time cared for his parents with dementia and failing health and all of that stuff. And I think that character has reached a point where she is sort of reclaims her own identity. He says, no, I'm not this person. I'm, we would never have dated. I was, mm-hmm. you know, whatever talk to goes back to that moment, but also 
is real enough to have kind of seen his life in a way that nobody, no one ever did. I mean, I think that's why he, he's kind of dreamed up a witness, you know? Mm-hmm. I took that moment of tenderness between them as real and as a real sort of like, if it's in the janitor's head, it's the janitor passing uh, knowledge on himself. But I think she sort of understands like that whatever purpose she was fulfilling in the story, she's fulfilled it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so maybe in that sense, it makes it makes sense that she would drop out. And maybe my sense of deflation with the end is just simply that I really liked the actress and the performance of Jesse Buckley and a certain amount of energy went out of the film after she left it. Although there's not a lot of yeah. movie left after that. But no, what there not is, much, but it's very different. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird as hell. So now we get into, yeah, the true vortex of weirdness of this movie and Oklahoma comes back in a big way. So um, right. after her hug with the janitor, Jesse Buckley is wandering through the hall. She does see Jesse Plemons again. They sort of spot each other from a distance down a hall. And then this wonderful slash strange, incomprehensible dance sequence ensues where a double for each of them dressed exactly like them, but, you know, a dancer. In fact, I think maybe the young dancers that we saw before the hall rehearsing Oklahoma. I don't know if they're the same people or not. I'm not sure. I don't. I, I looked at that, but you don't really see their faces in that earlier. Home, yeah. So. At any rate, they they echo those two young people that the janitor had early earlier passed. You know, rehearsing in the hall. The two Jessies, you know, the two actual actors we've been watching all along as these characters kind of drop away and their two dance doubles dressed exactly like them go into this extended uh, kind of romantic dance sequence that reminded me of the, you know, like an MGM dance sequence within a movie, right? Those moments in Singing in the Rain or American in Paris where the story drops away and Sid Charisse shows up and, you know, there's this non-narrative dance sequence that happens. And that happens all over the school. It's quite extended. This is one of those moments where I thought, like, although I'm enjoying this and the idea of it is great, it is extending the movie to two hours and ten minutes. (laughs) And I kind of get the idea. Um, But it culminates Oklahoma style in this fight dance uh, in the gym where a different dancer shows up who's a double for the janitor, right? This kind of older man wearing the, the janitorial costume suit. And... And then a knife fight breaks out during the dance, something, again, that happens in Oklahoma. And the finale of this knife fight is that the dancer janitor kills the dancer Jesse, who's then, oh, and, and snow is falling, which at this point makes perfect sense for some reason, even though they're in a school gym. The same <laughs> snow is filtering down that's been snowing throughout the whole movie, which I think really speaks to, you know, it's, it's a beautiful detail that speaks to the interpenetration of inside and outside, right? Inside and outside of a building and also inside and outside of these people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. And who shows up to sweep up the snow after the dancer Jesse has died, but the real janitor guy. So now we're at least back in a world where that fantasy dance sequence has ended. But what does it mean? Okay, here and here's where I just want to get into some flat, like bring out the pragmatic robot. What does it right. mean that fake dancer janitor killed fake dancer Jesse? And, you know, if you were going to map that onto some kind of allegorical graph that was equal to this movie in oklahoma uh i mean what what happens with that dance sequence is the i i don't know the characters names in oklahoma but the the female character the jesse uh buckley character or whatever is has taken laudanum and has like a fantasy dream about her two suitors one of the people who's pursuing her kills the other one and so i think like if you want to do the pragmatic thing with this you're seeing the old version of the janitor killing the young version of the janitor i mean it's 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 old age uh destroying youth right right and also the fantasy dream of romance that that dancer yeah jake represented right having been killed by the reality of loneliness and and old age yeah exactly do we see either young jake or 
Jesse again after that sequence? I think they just disappear from the movie, right? I think the next time we see them is in this closing scene that we're about to talk about. Oh, that's right. Yes. So you then follow the janitor who has cleaned up this thing or whatever as he leaves the school, gets into his truck, but he doesn't start it. He just sits there as snow is falling around him. And I don't know if it's in dialogue or whatever, but you you get the impression that he's waiting there to freeze to death, basically, that he's just decided this is it. You first start seeing him shiver, and then he just takes off all of his clothing, like he's trying to speed that process along. He also is remembering in fragments little scenes from his childhood that we see. So we see some more David Thewlis and Tony Collette, right, moments from his childhood. And he seems to be having this kind of emotional breakdown or crisis of some kind. So he's in the car, he's gotten naked, and then you see through the windshield, like it's being projected there, this Tulsi Town ad from the 50s, a black and white sort of animated ad about the queen of Tulsi Town and um, an ice cream kind of fantasy land. Brilliant piece of animation, by the way, that has a lot of strange, scary details in it, like the moment when the little ice cream man sort of forms from the ground, and then the yes. the queen of Tulsi Town steps on him and squashes him down. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing little thing. But then there's this animated pig that I think comes from the ad, begins talking to the janitor and encourages him to sort of follow it, says, follow me or something like that. And the janitor, at this point, totally naked, follows the animated pig back into the high school. And as they go, the pig has this conversation about essentially fate, I guess. I should say add also that this pig is, is dripping blood. It's apparently being eaten by maggots. Yeah, he's he is one of the maggot pigs, right? I mean, he establishes yeah. that. He says, hey, I'm a, I'm a pig being eaten by maggots. It is what it is. <laughs> yeah, somebody's got to be a pig eaten by maggots or whatever, you know, which I think is sort of somebody's also got to be a high school janitor. You have the shot of this naked elderly janitor following an animated pig down the high school hallway. And the pig says something like, let's get you dressed. And then there's a smash cut to the high school auditorium where the Oklahoma set is still basically up there. But there's also a Nobel Prize podium. And Jake, not the janitor, but Jake is standing behind it wearing a tuxedo and old age makeup, but bad high school old age makeup. Right. And this is this is key because we saw good old age makeup in earlier in the movie on Tony exactly. Collette's character and David Thewlis's character. And suddenly, as you say, it's this clearly amateur level high school makeup with big dark creases for, for wrinkles, etc., which not only Jake is wearing, but everyone in the audience is wearing, including all the characters we've seen, his mother, his father, Jesse Buckley, even the ice cream girls are there. Yes. And he gives them the speech from A Beautiful Mind, which... Verbatim? Yeah, verbatim. Oh, wow. I hadn't seen that movie in so long that I got the reference, but not that it was actually lifted. Yeah. Also on that shelf in the bedroom is a DVD of A Beautiful Mind. The speech that he gives is, is verbatim from that. And it's a the speech about how love is the most important mathematical equation. of You know, it's the John Nash speech from, from that movie. I didn't look to see if it was cut the same way, but it has that sort of stuff. When he starts talking about love, it cuts to Jesse Buckley, old Jesse Buckley sitting in the audience of the Nobel Prize, you know, ceremony uh, with tears in her eyes and so on and so forth. My read of that is that the janitor is trying to kind of imagine what it would have been like if he'd had a long and successful and happy life, because that's kind of alien to him to stage that scene. His brain goes to the end of a beautiful mind, which he's either seen recently or, 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 or likes 
very much, I would guess. Right. He's kind of making a mashup of My Beautiful Mind in Oklahoma, two works of right. art that have, have right. been meaningful to him and making it into his ideal life. And if you go to your theory that this whole thing is a figment of the janitor's imagination, this would almost be his dying fantasy, right? Exactly. Yeah. This is him thinking as he's sort of freezing to death or in the novel, he cuts his own throat at some point. But whatever's happening to him at this point, his mind is not is. The story that he's crafted is kind of falling apart, let's say. Right. Jake, in old age makeup, sings Lonely Room from Oklahoma, which is a song sung by Jug Fry, who is the character in the dream ballet who stabs the other lover to death. And it's a song specifically about imagining a life where the line is like something like, all the things that I wish for turn out how I want them to be. It's not in the movie, but it was in the, it was in the original musical. So he sings a song about imagining a life in which he was happy, which he's just done. Yeah, I wasn't familiar with that song, not having seen the stage musical Oklahoma, only the movie. And uh, yeah. I thought it had maybe been written by Charlie Kaufman as a, you know, as a fantasy addition to the to the cast album of Oklahoma, because it suits the themes of this movie and in general, Kaufman's obsession so completely. Yeah, it's a very authentic uh, addition to the, <laughs> to the musical because it, it was in it, but it was not in the movie. It, um, that song was only used in, in the stage version. Okay, so he finishes singing his song, and then he gets a standing up ovation from the audience. And then there's a shot of him standing up. He's wearing the Beautiful Mind costume. He's in white tie and um, wearing a Nobel Prize medal. And that really, really slowly kind of, that shot fades to blue over the sound of all this applause that mm -hmm. he's, he's getting for his performance. And that blue then kind of fades in on a shot of the high school. The next uh, morning is the blue sky, a right? car buried right. under snow. But it is not the pickup truck that the janitor is driving. It, it, it appears to be from the shape, the car that uh, Jesse Buckley and Jake were driving. All right. So, Matt, since I keep making you channel this pragmatic robot who has some sort of logical explanation. Oh, I'm not channeling it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like obviously both of us would agree that this movie doesn't want all those questions to be answered, right? It wants there to be a, a lot of open interpretations. It wants to be enigmatic and mysterious. And I love that about it. But I still can't help asking a question about the very last shot that we see after that fade to blue and that becomes the blue sky of the next day. Right. And, uh, and we see the parking lot with this shape of a car underneath snow. What, what do you think from a pragmatic point of robot view is happening in that car? I mean, it's clearly the car of Jesse Plemons and Jesse Buckley. It's not shaped like the pickup truck of the janitor. So even if they were figments of his imagination, there does seem to be some material reality of something that happened in that car the night before. So when you picture, you know, getting a squeegee and squeegeeing off the window windshield of that car, are there two frozen bodies inside? Are there one frozen body? Is there no one? Are there just two Oreo burrs? Or I guess those got thrown away. But like, <laughs> what do you see as being the coda to this movie if there were one? I think it's that some piece of this story that got, I mean, again, pragmatic robot explanation that some piece of the story has bled into reality that uh, the janitor leaves the pickup truck and dies or kills himself, freezes to death, whatever happens to him in the inside the school. I think we can assume it's not great. And, but in the morning, his car has been replaced with the car from his story. I, I mean, I think it's just a gesture towards magic really, or, or an inexplicable way that stories can bleed into. into yeah. Reality. It's this metatextual moment, right? Where something yeah. that seems like it was a fantasy actually reveals itself as true, which reminds me of this. I don't think I've ever told you about this, but all the times that I watched Wizard of Oz growing up, I always had this belief that at the very end of the movie, when it goes back to black and white and she wakes up in her own bed and, you know, the farmhands are all there and everything, 
that mm-hmm. after she says there's no place like home, that the camera tilts down to below the bed and below the bed are the ruby shoes and only the ruby shoes are in color. Everything else is still in black and white. It, there was some period where I didn't see that movie for many years because, you know, it was before DVDs or whatever. And then when I saw it again as an adult or maybe a teenager, I remember being shocked that the ruby shoes weren't under the bed. That was just something that I had imagined into the movie that I thought should be there because it would prove that there was some reality to her visit to Oz. Somewhat immaterial, but maybe that's kind of the, the role right, that the, play, the, the car gesture, plays yeah. at the end. Right. I, th- I think anyway, I, I, that, that's my, my take on it. I just have to tell you that uh, one thing, which is that my, my mother's Wizard of Oz story, yes, um, which is that she, you know, they used to run it on TV every year, I think around Thanksgiving or whatever. Anyway, they had a black and white TV and she'd never seen it on film, but she loved the movie and watched it every year, every year, every year, and had been told that it was in color. And then finally, one year, they went over to another family's house where they had a color TV and the movie started up. And of course, it opens in black and white. And she just started crying and crying and crying. She thought things had gone terribly wrong and it wasn't in color. And she'd been waiting for years to see this. But then she must have been so thrilled when the color kicked in. Yeah, they explained it to her and then it it happened or whatever. But her initial reaction to the opening shots was just extreme childhood distress. Oh, my God, that's so sweet. You should write about that. All right. It, that is basically the explanation for the car at the end, right? It's the remnant of mystery from, you know, what the pragmatic robot can't explain. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's the way I read it anyway. All right. Well, that's our show. Thank you so much, Matthew. That was one of my favorite spoilers I've done in a while because that movie has actual riddles to untangle and it was really fun doing it with you. Yeah, it was a blast. Thanks so much for having me. Let's do it again very soon. I like that. I should mention that you wrote a piece uh, on the book and the movie and comparing, contrasting some of the things about them, which should be up on Slate and readable by the time you're listening to this podcast. So if you want to read some more of Matt Desim on I'm Thinking of Ending Things, go to Browbeat and look for it. Our producer today was Rosemary Belson. Please, as always, subscribe to the show and you can rate us in iTunes as well if you want to bring other people's attention to the spoiler special. And if you have ideas of future movies or TV shows or even podcasts that you would like us to spoil, you can write us at spoilers at slate.com. For Matthew Desim, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening and we will join you on the next spoiler special. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.